Well, good morning. That's a super intense bumper to come up right after. So I'm not April's favorite person, though she did make a right choice in Brooke and that super intense bumper. It is so great to see you all. If you, uh, my name is Chris Thayer. If you've never, never met before, I'm our pastor of discipleship. If you have your Bibles with you, that's great. You can go ahead and open them up to Jonah chapter one, because we are going to be in the book of Jonah. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. The words are going to be up on the screen at just the right time. And we go through that effort to ensure that you're able to encounter Scripture because we view Scripture so highly here at Good Shepherd. And because we view Scripture highly, there's a couple of things that we like to remind ourselves of virtually every week. And the first one is this. Even though this looks like a book, it's actually not a book. It's a library. It's a collection of 66 different books written by a number of different authors over a long period of time, and perhaps most importantly, it's written in different writing styles. And we like to remind ourselves of that because it helps us to remember to read scripture in context, to read scripture the way that it was intended to be read. The other thing that we like to remind ourselves of, and you might not believe this yet, and that's okay, we simply wanna let you know where we stand in leadership here at Good Shepherd Church, and that's that we believe that unlike any other book or any other library in the world, that this one is uniquely inspired, eternal, and true. So whenever we read it together, we do this sort of odd thing where we lift it up. Not because we worship the Bible, we don't, but because we worship the God who inspired the Bible. And we want to show in a tangible way that we get to stand under his authority and his authority alone. Amen? The other thing that I want to do before I say anything else is I want to pray. Would you pray with me and for me as I pray with you and for you? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come and to be able to talk about Jonah. Lord, thank you that when I am weak, you are strong. And thank you that your joy gives me strength this morning. Lord, I pray for all of us that we wouldn't hear the gospel of Jesus and leave here the same, but instead that we would be changed people, becoming who it is that you've called us to be. God, you are good and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I have been looking very forward to preaching about Jonah during this sermon series because Jonah is one of those books of the Bible that virtually everybody knows about and almost nobody has ever actually read. Jonah is one of those books of the Bible. I don't know if you knew this or not. It's the only book of the Bible that's actually named after the villain in the story. And we'll get to what that means in just a little bit. And, and, and Jonah, everybody thinks that Jonah has everything to do with this giant whale or this big fish. But the reality is the author is doing something much deeper and much more important and much more groundbreaking than even that miraculous event. And perhaps my favorite part of Jonah altogether is that its writing style closely resembles what we would call satire. It's full of all kinds of humor, all kinds of irony. It makes us laugh at the ridiculousness of the character of Jonah, not so much to simply laugh at the punchline, but to do what great satire does, which is get us to think about the ways that our life reflects the punchline. Now, whether that's for an ancient Israelite or for a 21st century American, that's a pretty heavy lift. 
because none of us really like to look at the junk in our own lives. We don't like to look in the mirror and focus on those things that we do that we don't like to see. Those ways that we don't reflect the love of God or the way that God has called us to live to the world around us. But for the life of a follower of Jesus, being willing to look at ourselves with sober judgment is so critical, so critical to being able to be who it is that God has called us to be. This is one of the reasons why I absolutely loved our re-engage group. And I'm looking down here because I see several people from my re-engage group that we just did here at Good Shepherd. Re-engage is a group that is geared towards people who are married to help them either go from a marriage that is struggling to a marriage that's good or a marriage that's good that they want to go from good to great. And my wife and I actually just finished this course and it was so good for us. We just passed 18 years of marriage this month, 18 years. Yeah, all those applauses are for my wife for putting up with me for 18 years. Uh, but yeah, we've been married for 18 years now and we just learned things in re-engage that have helped us take our marriage to another level. It helped us to learn skills that we never had before so that we are able to have what we like to call around here a beautiful marriage. And my favorite thing about re-engage is the foundational, the fundamental principle that re-engage gives every single person that wants to have a healthy marriage. And really, it's for anybody who wants to have any kind of healthy relationships in their life. So this principle is for everybody and it has everything to do with this. Now, half of you in this room just got really excited that the preacher might try to hula hoop on a Sunday morning. The other half of you just got really scared that I might just try to hula hoop on a Sunday morning. I was practicing yesterday. My daughter was here, and she could do this really. I couldn't do it in private. I'm not about to do it in public. <laughs> it was fun. My wife got a really big kick out of it, though. No, it's not. A hula hoop is not the secret to a successful marriage. This is. You see, re-engage actually starts off the entire group by saying, hey, everybody stand up, draw a circle around yourself, and fix everything in the circle. Because the great lie that we tell ourselves in our marriages or in our relationships is that the primary and fundamental problem that we have is the other person. But the reality is we are much more at fault for the problems that we face in our own marriage than we're ever willing to give ourselves credit for. And the only person that we can actually change in this world is ourself. And so re-engage says, hey, draw a circle around yourself and fix everything in the circle. But like I said, it's, it's difficult to look at ourselves with that kind of sober judgment. And this is why I have loved the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah gets us laughing at what's happening in the story, and it takes down some of those natural barriers that we have, those ways that we feel a little bit gross looking at ourselves when we don't see things that we want to see in our lives. Jonah gets us laughing at them so that we can say, yeah, I, I do actually resemble the character and the life of Jonah in some ways. See, here's, here's what I mean. Open up to Jonah chapter one, And in Jonah chapter 1, it starts off this way in verse 1. 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, imagine the, the way that the scriptures were passed down from generation to generation wasn't kind of the same way that we do it today. Instead, imagine there was a father sitting around a campfire at night with all of his family, his children, and his extended family around them. And he says, hey, let me, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you about the prophet Jonah. Now, nobody would have been surprised by the way that, that the father started this story, that God sent his word to a prophet and said, hey, go to this wicked city and preach against it, because that's kind of what God did with prophets. That was their role. He would say, hey, you, you, you need to be my mouthpiece to go preach against this city that's doing this thing that, that I don't want them to do. So go to this city, go to this people, do this thing all so that you can be my mouthpiece. So none of that's surprising. And it's also not surprising to the people sitting around the campfire that God would send Jonah to Nineveh because Nineveh would eventually become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was known for being absolutely brutal and ruthless in their warfare. They wanted to conquer the known world around them and they did not care how they got there. They would actually destroy the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC and march all the way down onto Jerusalem. And if God hadn't have intervened, Assyria would have completely wiped all of the Israelite people off the map. So not a shock at all that God says to go to Nineveh. But then, as the father continues the story, the, the story takes a turn and the people around the fire start to chuckle a little bit because this is what happens next. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, Probably none of us in this room have a degree in ancient Near Eastern geography. So this doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but this would have been just like God coming to somebody in this room and saying, hey, native Charlatan, I want you to go to that wicked city of New York, New York. It's got some good Southerners in here, by the way. I'm from New York, it's okay. I can make fun of it. Go to that wicked city of New York, New York, and preach against it. And we say to God, okay, cool. We drive to Charlotte Douglas International Airport, and we hop on a plane to Los Angeles, California. We literally go as far away from New York, New York, as we possibly can. This is exactly what Jonah did. God said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is to the northeast, and Jonah said, I'm going to go all the way to Tarshish, which is the end of the known world as far west as I can possibly go. And the people around the campfire are chuckling because they're Israelites. They know that Jonah can't run away from the Lord. And then the father continues. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. 
All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. And so we find out that all of these sailors are pagans. They, they worship other gods. They don't worship the one true God. They're all crying out to their own gods, hedging their bets, trying to figure out, hey, who, whose God is gonna save us? Whose God might rescue us from this mess that we've got going on? And we know that the storm was absolutely terrible because they start throwing their cargo overboard. They're trying to lighten the ship, and we know that that means that the storm is so terrible because the only way that they were gonna get paid when they got the Tarshish was to sell all of that cargo. So they're literally throwing their payday out to sea. That's how bad this storm is. And we go from chuckles around the fire to downright laughter when this next part happens. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep couldn't be bothered. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So all of these other sailors trying to save their own skin and Jonah below deck taking a cat nap could not care less about what it is that's going on around him. The captain comes down and says, hey, idiot, wake up. I may have added that a little bit. He says, hey, come wake up. What are you doing? We're, we're all trying to cry out to our gods. Maybe if you cry out to your God, he'll save us. In the meantime, the sailors are all above deck trying to figure out who's at fault for this mess that they've got going on. So in verse seven, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah and casting lots is kind of like drawing the short straw. So Jonah gets the short straw. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So the sailors are all terrified and they say, hey, we've, we've casted lots. That fate has shown us that Jonah, it's, it's you who's causing all these problems. What's going on? And they start peppering him with all of these kinds of questions. And then, Jonah in verse nine says this, he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And at this, everybody around the campfire starts laughing. And why do they start laughing? Because Jonah is trying to run away from the God who made the entire universe. All kinds of irony, all kinds of laughter happening when the father is telling them this part of the story. I'm trying to run away from the God who created the sea on the sea. Knowing this, this in verse 10, this terrified them, the, the sailors. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Then down in verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? How do we make this better, Jonah? What do we need to do? And at this point, Jonah says something that makes us think initially like he might be turning a new leaf until we spend a little bit of time thinking about it. Jonah says this in verse 12. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So Jonah says to the sailors, if you wanna make this all go away, if you wanna make this all calm down, then you need to pick me up and you need to throw me overboard. Now, at first glance, 
That sounds noble. That sounds self-sacrificial. That sounds like maybe Jonah is turning a new leaf until, until we think about it just a little bit. Because what is the one thing that everybody else on this boat has done that Jonah never did? Cried out to their own God. Not once did Jonah do one of the things that he could have done, which is God, I'm sorry for being disobedient. When we get to Tarshish, I'm gonna hop on a new boat and I'm gonna go all the way back to Nineveh. Jonah could have said, hey, you know what, guys? Uh, I'm gonna cry out to my God. I'm gonna ask for forgiveness. And maybe then if, we, if, if he relents the storm, we can turn around. Jonah could have even just jumped overboard and tried to swim ashore. Instead, he puts all of the burden of his response to God on everybody else on the ship. You wanna make this better? Then you gotta pick me up and murder me. You got to throw me overboard. And so what sounds noble, all of a sudden we realize is Jonah saying, I would rather die than confess my own sin before the God who caused this calamity to begin with because of my rebellion. So we see something that looks noble, looks self-sacrificial, and all of a sudden we realize it is incredibly self-centered and gross. So all of the sailors, what do they do? Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. They didn't want to throw Noah, uh, Jonah, they're not throwing Noah overboard. A <laughs> little bit before. They didn't want to throw Jonah overboard because they knew what that meant, but they could not row back to shore for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. All kinds of irony. Jonah, never willing to cry out to God. All of these pagan sailors, what do they do? They cry out to God. Jonah, not willing to ask for forgiveness. What do the pagan sailors do? They ask for forgiveness. Jonah, not willing to be obedient. What do the pagan sailors do? Be obedient and offer sacrifices and turn their lives around. The prophet of God doesn't get it. And all of these pagan Sailors do all kinds of humor, all kinds of irony. Now, if you want to find out what happens to Jonah after he gets tossed into the drink, you're going to have to come back next week. But spoiler alert, he actually survives. If he didn't, this would be a very short sermon series. So, uh, but, but what I really want to focus in on is when we step back from all of this, and we think about the reality that the author of Jonah is, is telling us the story this way to get us not just to laugh at the punchline, to not just snicker at the ways that Jonah doesn't do what he's supposed to do, but also to, to look back at ourselves, to, to look at ourselves with, with sober judgment, to, to put our circle on the ground and step into the circle and think about the ways that our life might reflect the life of Jonah. And when I, when I realize that and I step back from all of that, I can't help but realize that the author of Jonah is asking me and is asking you and is asking all of us this question. 
Where are you making your response somebody else's responsibility? Where are you making your response somebody else's responsibility? Where is, is, is your lack of living the way that God has called you to live actually causing pain and harm around other people because of your actions? And if I'm honest, when I think about that question and I put my circle down on the ground and I step in it, I realize that I've stepped in it. Over the, a couple of you got that. I realize that I've stepped in it over the last couple of months. You see, two months ago or so, when spring was in full force, and I realized, hey, you know what? It's time for me to go ahead and put down some weed killer and some fertilizer on my yard so that I can be a halfway decent neighbor to those around me and have a decent looking lawn. I, I, I went to Home Depot, I got all of the chemicals, I brought them back home, and I started on the front yard first. And as I was working on the front yard, my two children, I have a 12-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter, and my 10-year-old daughter was at that time nine years old. She just turned 10, and I had to promise that I was gonna tell you all that she turned 10 and that she's not nine anymore because she's not single digits. It's a big deal. Parenting, hard. Take that parenting class, please. <laughs> so they come outside and they say, hey, Dad, we're gonna play. And I said, that's great, Please just stay in the, in the cul-de-sac. Don't go on the grass because I don't want you to get chemicals on you. They said, okay, no problem. So they stayed in the cul-de-sac in front of our front yard. So I finish the front yard and then I move all the way to the back of my house and start working on the backyard. Now, when I'm in the backyard, my daughter from the cul-de-sac, following my directions, from the cul-de-sac yells back to me, hey dad, can I go over to my friend's house and invite them out to play from the backyard? Sure, please just make sure that you stay off the grass. What? Sure, just make sure that you all stay off the grass. Huh? Now, I am sure that I am the only parent in this place that does not like to repeat themselves and starts to get a little tick every time it happens. So I started to get a little frustrated that my daughter's not hearing. Now, mind you, she's in the, in the cul-de-sac and, and she's doing what I told her to by not walking through the grass to come and talk to me, but, but I still got upset anyway. And I walk towards my daughter and as I walked towards my daughter, I said, open your ears. Yes, please just stay off the grass. And, and I, honest, that's exactly how I thought it sounded. Appropriate for church. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't. I go back to my backyard and I finish my yard. And my kids are all still playing outside. My daughter, she went and got her friends. I then proceed to go inside. And when I go inside, the first thing that I do, like many of us do, is I picked up my phone, which I had left inside, and, and I wanted to see whether or not I had any messages or notifications, and lo and behold, I had a notification. And what I didn't tell you earlier was that I had recently installed some security cameras around my house. And one of the cameras is on the side that I was on and walking up towards my daughter. So when I walked up towards my daughter, I triggered 
a security camera that decided, hey, this is an event. I need to start recording this in high definition with audio. So I, I, press, I press play. And when I pressed play on that recording and I heard the way that I spoke to my then nine-year-old daughter, I was ashamed. I was mortified that I had spoken to my own daughter that way for following my directions, for doing what I had already said to do. Now, I could try to make up some excuse and say that, well, she should have just been listening closer, or you know, maybe I was upset earlier in the day, but the, the honest truth is probably much closer to the reality that I just simply didn't want to be bothered while I was doing another task. And all of a sudden, my response became my daughter's responsibility. It wasn't a her problem, it was a me problem. How about for you? What are the ways that that you realize as you pick up your circle and you put it down in front of you and you step into it, what are, what are the ways that you realize that you haven't been living up to the way that God has called you to live? And rather than taking ownership of that, you've been making it other people's responsibility. Is it, is it like me? Is it the way that you've spoken to your children and rather than being in loving and encouraging and supportive and uplifting of them, You've, you've allowed the things that are happening in your own life to dictate the ways that you interact with your own kids who had nothing to do with any of those other circumstances? Is it the way that you communicate with your spouse? And rather than your spouse getting your best, they get what's left over after you finish a hard day of work. And honestly, it's not that much. Is it perhaps maybe some sort of an addiction where your response to all kinds of chemicals, whether that be drugs or alcohol or pornography, your response has become everybody else's responsibility around you because you haven't been willing to walk through the difficult work of sobriety. Where is your response becoming somebody else's responsibility? Maybe it's even simpler than that. Maybe it's one of these other Charlotte drivers on this roads. The reality is what's happening inside of your car when you get cut off has a lot less to do with the car in front of you than it does with what's going on inside of your own heart. Where are you making your response somebody else's responsibility? Now, I love this circle. It can be a little painful, but I love it. And the biggest reason that I love the circle is because we may have to work on ourselves, but we don't have to do it by ourselves. And in particular, what I mean is that when we step into our circles, we will find that Jesus is already there waiting for us. Now, I don't mean that as some kind of a trite saying or a Christian Hallmark card. I mean that in the deepest and truest way that I possibly can. Because when Jesus came and lived a sinless life, when Jesus was murdered on a cross on our behalf and buried in a tomb and then resurrected on the third day, he defeated sin and death. 
And one of my biggest pet peeves is how so often we as Christians will so frequently fall back on the saying, I'm just a sinner, I can't help it. Bull. Jesus died on a cross so that you are no longer a slave to sin. Sin has been defeated. And if sin has been defeated, then through the power of Jesus, we have the ability to live the kind of lives that he's called us to live. The, the, the apostle Paul talks about it this way. He said, you, you, your old self has been taken off and you're putting on your new self. You're clothing yourself in God's righteousness. Now, this doesn't mean that we get to white knuckle things in our lives and that's how we defeat sin. No, we, we defeat sin by relying on the power of our heavenly father who provided a way through the person of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to live the kind of lives that he's called us to live here and now. And so practically, how does this work? Well, when I, when I watched that video on my phone, the first thing that I needed to say was, Heavenly Father, please forgive me. I should have never treated one of your children that way, much less my own daughter. I then immediately went out to my garage and I called my daughter in and I sat down and I said, hey, I just saw a video of how I spoke to you when you asked me that question. I'm sorry. I should never have spoken to you that way. That wasn't a you problem, that was a me problem. Will you please forgive me for speaking to you with that tone of voice? And my daughter in a beautiful picture of God's grace for us said, of course, daddy. She gave me a kiss on the cheek, she gave me a hug, she went back out and she continued playing. And now I know to be aware of my tone of voice when I'm speaking to my children and to think about it. It's the same for all of us, cry out to God. If you've interacted with a person and they didn't get what they were supposed to, then be honest and allow them to be able to pour out the kind of grace that our Heavenly Father pours out for us. And the, the beautiful thing about this inside of a marriage or inside of a relationship is when we start to realize the grace that we need and that we've been given, we have all kinds of grace and all kinds of patience for those who are around us, including our spouse, including those that we're closest to. Where are you making your response somebody else's responsibility? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to laugh a little bit at the character of Jonah and then turn that right back around on ourselves and think about the ways that our beliefs don't match up with our actions. And Lord, as we draw circles around ourselves, we pray that you would empower us to see the ways that we don't reflect you to the world around us and also empower us to change, not our own power, but because of the power that we have through the person of Jesus who already defeated sin on our behalf. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.